Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure in suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nick. Father, we admit that without you, we can do nothing. And Lord Jesus, you are our king. We happily gather this morning in your name. We come to worship you. We come to sing your praises. We come to be amazed at what you have done for us. And Lord, with human effort, nothing is impossible, but with divine effort, everything is possible. And Father, I would ask that you would be kind to us as we seek to worship you and to serve you and to honor your name, Lord Jesus. You are our king. You are a king we have not yet seen with our eyes, but we long to see you. And Lord, I, I ask that as we think about all that you have done in considering the incredible miracle that you have granted, that we have exactly in our hands the word that you intend for us to have as believers in order to be strengthened and edified, or that we would praise you for that fact. And Lord, I would ask that you would help us to be strengthened this morning and edified as we look at your word. And Lord, I don't know all that you would want to do in every one of our hearts, but I know that you're doing something. I know that you are molding and shaping your people into your image. And I ask that as we sit with your word, that our hearts would be attentive to you, that you would give us eyes to see your glory and ears to hear what you would want to say to us. And Father, through your spirit, I pray, Lord Jesus, you would speak to us. You would help us to know, each of us individually, what you would say to us this morning if you were standing here right now speaking to us. And Lord, by your spirit, I believe that you do speak to us. And I pray that your word would be the means by which we hear you this morning. So Father, grant strength to weak hearts, grant encouragement to those who are discouraged, grant healing to those who need it, both physical and emotional. Do wonderful things for the sake of your name, Lord Jesus. We are here for you, and yet I pray that goodness would come to us because of our desire to exalt you. So Lord Jesus, our, our eyes are on you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. 
Uh, Nick just read the final words in 2 Timothy, uh, which I am not going to expound uh, per se. Uh, we'll come back to that at the very end of the message. But if, if you're with us here for the first time, uh, we're moving throughout the, the whole New Testament trying to get an understanding of, of what the Bible is. So we'll come back to those, those final words in Paul's second letter to Timothy um, at the very end. But we're, the, the title is Empty uh, of our sermon series, which um, is, a, is a kind of way of understanding the different time periods that have unfolded across the New Testament. E stands for expectations, M is for Messiah, uh, P is for Pentecost, and T is for teaching, and that's where we are now. We're in the, the teaching, which is essentially the, the epistles of the, the New Testament. There are 21. We looked at seven last week, um, and another miracle of all miracles. We'll take another seven today. Um, primarily looking at the, uh, the, uh, the, the prison epistles, which there are four of those, and the pastoral epistles, which are the final three of Paul's letters. Now, last week we left Paul in uh, Corinth as he had written uh, his letter to the Romans, which is about A.D. 57 or so, and uh, we... we, we left him there. Um, and so we're going to pick up right where we left off. And I just want to give you a quick heads up of, of what's unfolded from when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. Uh, and then fast forward, he was on his way to Jerusalem. So Paul's in, in Corinth, he wrote the letter to Rome, and then he's, he's got um, some financial relief that he's planning to take to the believers in Jerusalem. And he's trying to get there before Passover. So that's his aim. So he's on a mission. He's got some financial resources with him. He's intending to bring it along. Um, he wants to deliver those resources to the needy Christians in Jerusalem and then celebrate Passover. And then he knows that uh, nothing but suffering and persecution awaits him. He knows that's going to happen because the Lord in every city as he's making his way back to Jerusalem has been moving God's people within those cities to warn him. Saying things like, and I'll summarize, Paul, you know when you get to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you. They're going to beat you. You, you know that's going to happen. Don't go. And, and Paul kept saying, what are you talking about? I'm going. If, if that's what happens to me, if that's God's will for me, then that's fine. And so he, he makes it about AD 57 uh, in, the, in, the, in the springtime. And so he arrives just before Passover. And then as he's there, you remember he's falsely accused. He is arrested. He is beaten. He is thrown in prison immediately. And the Romans are trying to figure out why the Jews are so tore up about about Paul and can't figure it out. And so they call for a little meeting with the, with the high court, the Sanhedrin, and they ask, well, what is the problem here? And Paul begins to explain the gospel and the Jews erupt. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are divided. They throw a fit, break out in a fist fight, MMA in Jerusalem. And so then uh, he's taken for his safety. Uh, Paul's nephew discovers a plot against his life. And so the, the centurion who was in charge of him takes him to Caesarea. And he spends two years in prison in Caesarea. He gets to testify before some kings and governors and so forth. And when his case is not, uh, the, the, not finalized or a verdict is not given, Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. And so the governor says, well, to Caesar you have appealed and to Caesar you will go. 
And so he is sent off to Rome. When he's in Rome, after a long journey, he arrives there. He's under house arrest. And this is where the the book of Acts ends. We end with Paul under house arrest, but able to preach. He's able to teach. He's able to receive visitors. He's able to write letters. And this is what we have. Four of the letters of, of the New Testament, so Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, they're called the, the prison epistles because in those letters, Paul makes specific reference to either being in chains or imprisoned. And so, but yet he can still write. And so he writes four of those letters while he's in prison. And then later he's released. He goes off to Spain, spends a couple of years in Spain, then returns to Rome where he again is arrested and at the end, closer to the end of his life, he writes three more epistles, which is First and Second Timothy and Titus. So we're going to look at the prison epistles during his first imprisonment and then um, those pastoral epistles, uh, which were written to young Timothy and young Titus, who are young pastors. And so that's what we're going to look at. So We're going to fly through seven epistles in just a few minutes. I'm going to try to give you a couple of verses from each of these epistles and then uh, share the main idea of each each letter. And remember, these are just letters. Epistles simply means letters. So what we have as scripture to us and what the the, the, the Christian church throughout history cherished as as hearing the voice of Jesus speaking through these letters. That's why I prayed the way I did. Uh, They realized these are not just mere correspondence. Actually, the Holy Spirit has moved Paul to write in a particular way that blessed Christians throughout the world and as such collected these letters and said, you need to read this, right? You've read a book, good book lately. You, you can't help but commend it. That's what early Christians did. When, when churches, letters were written to entire churches, when they would get a letter and they were blessed, they would pass it on to other churches and go down the road and say, yes, need to read this letter from Paul. It's really helpful. And so that's how we have the New Testament that we have is essentially churches being blessed by reading what has been written and then collected and treasured, right? So these these letters, the word of God is a treasure. And so I'm going to try to give you the high level view of about seven of these, which is almost impossible. I just say the goal of this sermon series is to give a high level overview. And every week I'm wilting, figuring out how in the world am I going to do this? So please pray for the boy. All right, please. So the prison epistles. Um, Paul's in Rome, AD 57. He's waiting for his trial. And the, the, he's waiting to be, have a hearing uh, in front of Caesar. Uh, the fifth Caesar at this point is Nero. Um, he is the one to whom Paul has appealed. And so he will be the one to plead his case and listen and hear whether or not Paul is going to be sentenced to death or be released. Paul did get to present his case to Nero. Nero heard uh, nothing that he would understand to be worthy of condemnation. So Paul's released. He's let go. But during this two-year period, while Paul is waiting for the governmental wheels to move, he's sort of writing letters. And the first one that he writes is to 
the, the Christians in Ephesus. So Ephesus was a place where Paul spent about three years in ministry, one of the longest places that he served. It is a port city, uh, a massive port, highly uh, industrialized, lots of trading happening in this particular city. It was famous for uh, the temple to the goddess Artemis. Um, and, and yet uh, we also have, have some ruins that are still today visible. And one of them is a library, which is the, the, the facade of the library of Celsus still stands to this day. Uh, you can see it if you visit it. But Paul spent three years there preaching the gospel. He started in the synagogues, which is always what he did, and then made his way, uh, after the Jews got hard-hearted and rejected him, made his way into a, a Greek facility called the Hall of Tyrannus, and he began preaching every day there. And many Jews and Greeks became believers in him. And so he writes a letter to Ephesus, to those Christians. He had deep affection for them. Paul's letters are sometimes very emotional. I encourage you to, to read through them and uh, listen to the emotion that comes about. But he, there doesn't appear to be any particular um, controversy that kind of edges him to write or encourages him to write. He writes so that theology, uh, right theology can be embraced by this church. And so he, he begins, what astonishes me is he begins with worship. I'm going to read you the first 14 verses. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, that would be great. Um, this is probably one of the most worshipful passages in all of the New Testament, I think. And I have been immensely blessed by listening to Paul's line of thinking. And, and you can follow him as he begins in praise and look at the doctrinal content of why he's praising. Right? Sometimes you just want to praise. Paul's got facts in his head which motivate him to praise the Lord. And so he begins and he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All of heaven's blessings come to those who have faith in Jesus. That's incredible. I mean, you think about the immense blessings of heaven that are listed for us. And he says, all of the blessings of heaven come to us through Jesus, right? So in the heavenly places, what's one of those blessings? Even as he chose us in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, for according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And in him, um, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time 
to unite all things, things in heaven and on earth. And in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed it, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I, I, we could spend a month of Sundays on that passage, just meditating on everything that's there, on redemption, on what Christ accomplished, on the fact that it is possible to know that salvation is guaranteed, being in Christ, receiving his Holy Spirit, putting faith in him who works and will accomplish our salvation. This, this passage gives Todd Cravens great hope because sometimes I feel like, I, how do I know tomorrow I'm still going to be believing? I, some days are really tough, right? Anybody had a tough day lately? Some days are really hard and you get blindsided by some piece of information that totally devastates your world. And, and upon what? What keeps you going? It's not just going to say, oh, you know, just be cheery, suck it up, move on. That's not substantial enough to keep me believing in Jesus. What keeps me going are promises like this that say, Jesus has a hold of me. He has put his spirit within me to work within me. What I cannot do for myself to keep my heart believing in him. That's faith. I love this verse. I, I love it. I, I commend it to you to memorize because God's grace is there. Did you hear purpose about three times? God's purpose is manifested. So Ephesians is an incredible book and I have so much more to say and we're just getting started. I wonder the grace of God which comes to us, Paul also highlights and he says this fantastic salvation comes not by works, not by your doing, but receiving. And so he says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You see that through faith is faith in Jesus is what effects salvation coming to us by the inner working of the Holy Spirit. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. God is a gracious God. He is generous. He gives gifts. He gives himself which is the gift of the Holy Spirit, means God gifts himself to us who would receive him by faith, which is absolutely amazing because none of us deserve to have this Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. And yet by redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, which Jesus purchased at the cross, we can have that blessing. We can receive the Holy Spirit of the Lord. So this is a great praise that Paul just magnifies his wonder to the Lord. And he also says in this letter, you Gentiles, this is not just for the Jews. This blessing of salvation is not just for them. He goes to great length to explain Gentiles are included in God's providence because that's probably most of us. 
right? Sometimes, and, and this, this was a plan long ago, Gentiles would be included in God's sovereign unfolding of salvation. And yet the Jews began to forget to emphasize that along the way. And so it seemed like, well, if, if a Messiah comes, a Jewish Messiah comes, he's just, just for the Jews. He's not going to save those who are non-Jews. And Paul says, no, no. This salvation is for everyone. And Paul writes a prayer, which I, I, I want to read to you. For Gentiles, in, in Ephesians 3, 16 to 20, he says, May he grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit, in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. How? Through faith. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all fullness of God who is able to do far more abundantly than you can even ask or think. And I suspect uh, some of us might need that this morning. Some of us might need to be grounded and rooted in the love of God. Uh, some of us, we are, are acutely aware of our own unworthiness. We know we don't deserve God's love. And yet, Paul says, you need to be rooted in that. Rooted in the fact that God loves you and has been gracious and he pours out his spirit to you. And Gentiles, you are included in this incredible promise of salvation which has been effected through the Holy Spirit. So Gentiles, believe this through faith. You don't have to do anything but trust in the work of Christ. And yes, when the Spirit of God dwells within you, there's plenty of doing. Paul spends some time talking that, and saying that we were created for good works. That, that salvation that we have needs to be manifested in our lives. And yet he says, I want you to know this and be rooted and grounded in love. Paul concludes his letter by saying, you got some enemies though. You need to be aware you have an enemy who is wanting to destroy your hope in Christ. He is wanting to ravage your family. He wants to prevent you from resting confidently in the work of Christ. And so know that you're an enemy. Be prepared for an enemy. And he says, you, you've got the word of God by which you can be on the offense. We have the shield of faith. We have a helmet of salvation. And I wonder, Paul probably is chained to a Roman guard. I wonder, is he looking at this Roman guard chained to him as he's writing? You know, God, how is it? He, helmet, he's got a helmet on, helmet of salvation. And he, he writes beautifully to explain that God has given us all we need in order to walk faithfully through this world. You're going to get attacked and yet Keep your faith in the Lord Jesus. So that's the letter of Ephesus. That's where he finishes. Uh, Ephesians is a, 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 an encouragement and an exaltation of Christ. It is to worship the Lord, but do so in fullness of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so this kind of preparation helps us to worship the Lord. So that's, that's Ephesians. The next letter that he writes is to the Philippians. Um, Philippi is uh, one of those cities on the uh, western edge um, of, of Greece. And Macedonia was Greece today. Was, uh, this was written about AD 62. Again, is when Paul, he's still in Rome writing here. Um, the city was a retirement city for military veterans. 
And so uh, it, it was a, an expanded city and uh, it had the Ignatian Way going through the middle of it, which is like, I don't know, like being built on I-95, right? You, you built a city right in the middle of I-95, runs through the middle of it. That's the Ignatian Way, Hi, highly commercialized. And, and Paul spent some time in this city, uh, founded it. Uh, we actually, some archaeological excavation has revealed that there is a mosaic on the floor, which has uh, the name of Paul uh, written into it that dates to about the third or fourth century. So we know Paul was there. Um, the church got founded. Um, he, Paul went to Philippi looking for a synagogue, but he couldn't find one. So he went outside the city and he found a group of women praying near a little river. And he began to share the gospel. And the first person who became a believer uh, in Philippi was a lady called Lydia. She was a, a wealthy woman, a merchant. She sold uh, purple goods, which is clothes that only rich people can buy. And uh, she became a believer. Paul went back into town and uh, cast out a demon out of a little slave girl whose owners had been using her to gain money. Paul cast a demon out of her. They got ticked off because now their income, source of income is gone, threw Paul in jail. And while he's in jail, he's singing. Him and Silas are in shackles inside a prison and they're praising the Lord. Um, and I, I, I stop and, and just kind of invite you to think, if you were in prison, if you were thrown in jail, right, would you be singing or demanding your rights or calling your lawyer or who knows what? And yet here's Paul inside this. They just, they break out in song. Because Paul is so confident that God can use any circumstance in his life to bring him glory and to effect this mission that he's on to share the good news. The jailer becomes a believer. After an earthquake, the jailer is the third person in him and his family who become believers. And so pretty soon, you've got a couple of families who are now believers in Jesus and the church is founded in Philippi. That's how that little church got started. And so uh, one thing that astonishes me um, is how this letter opens. So the very first verse, Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, so Timothy is with Paul in Rome at this point. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Paul, we, what do you think of when you hear the word saint? N not you, right? <laughs> saint, not me. Somebody else, it's, it's, a, it's a faraway person who's like super religious and high up, you know, in, in, the, in the echelons of the church and so forth. That's not the way this word is used. When Paul is writing to the saints in Ephesus, he's writing to all of them. He's writing to the church and he calls them saints. He does not mean all of them are sinless or have given away all their money to charity and so forth. He means a saint is a person who is called out of the world to be close to God in order to live like him in this world. Called to be near to God, to Christ, and to live in the way that is obedient and honors his name. So to the saints. And church, I just want to remind you, this is how you ought to think of yourself. You ought not to think of yourself as, as someone who is condemned and under condemnation, for we are not under condemnation. We have been called out to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. How you think about yourself affects what you do in your life. If you think 
perpetual sinning is what you are bound to do and you have no freedom to do anything else, you're going to keep giving in to sin. But if by the Spirit of God you have been called and empowered by His indwelling Spirit to live obediently, then you will begin to live that way. And that's who we are called to be. Being referred to as a saint does not mean you're perfect and without fault. It means I have a different orientation. I have a calling. I have a king is what today is about. A king who is actually alive and risen. He gets to tell me how to live my life. And, and by giving me himself to help me do it. I by the grace of God will continue to move in that direction. I will grow in holiness. I will, I will learn to love righteousness and hate evil. And I will grow in, in my following of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a saint is. A saint is a person who is called to manifest the character of the Lord. And if you think that is an impossible calling, Philippians 1.6 says this. I'm sure of this. This is what Paul says. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the day of, of, salva of, of Christ Jesus. He will be faithful to complete what he's begun. So if Jesus has started something in you, he will finish it by faith in the grace of God. So don't hear the calling to be a saint as I can't do this because you can't. But with the spirit of God within us, yes, we can we can begin to walk obediently with the Lord. And that's what Paul calls us to through his letter in, uh, to the Philippians. And so what's the main idea? Paul says here, he's filled with joy at seeing this church grow and flourish. Even though he is in prison, he says, even my imprisonment will bring about joy because he says, I have now shared the gospel with the whole Praetorian guard and even some of Caesar's household have become believers in Christ. So Paul spending time in Rome, he's sharing the gospel, soldiers are coming to Christ and so are people who work with Caesar. That's incredible. So let the joy of the Lord be manifested in your life. As, as you follow him, let that joy flow through your life. And so now let's jump to Colossians. Um, this letter, uh, also written at the same time, but for a different reason. There was a problem in the church at Colossae, and it, it had to do with false teachers. Uh, Paul gets word that, that this little church had, um, after his departure, false teachers had come in and begun to encourage people to get fascinated with angels and to worship angels. Because have you read the Bible? Angels are really powerful dudes. They are strong. And so there's this attention that's drawn away from Christ and to um, worshiping angels that infiltrated the church after his departure. So the whole point of, of Paul's letter to the Colossians is to say, don't worship the creature, worship the guy who created the creatures. Worship Christ. And so Paul gives an incredible explanation of who Jesus is. Just a few verses from the first chapter, 15 to 20. He says about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. 
Uh, don't get tangled up by firstborn and think that means the first created being like the Mormons do. That's not what this word means. It means the one who has the right to the inheritance or authority over. And you'll see it in the word preeminence in just a second. So he is the firstborn over all creation. He's the authoritative one over all creation. He's the highest ranking one over all creation. Why? For by him, all things were created. He's an uncreated being. Everything that was created was created by him. In heaven and on earth, what you can see, what you cannot see, all of it created by Jesus, whether authorities, dominions, rulers, all of these were created by Jesus. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, meaning he existed before them, and he holds them together. He keeps everything together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There's, there's that word. For in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's incredible. All of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And through Jesus to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, and make peace by the blood of the cross. Peace between man and God comes from having your sins atoned for. That's what Jesus accomplished. Therefore, we can have peace. And so Paul says, in him is the fullness of deity dwelling bodily. Meaning, don't worship angels. Worship Jesus. He created angels. He, the most powerful angel. We have one biblical example of one angel in one night killing 185,000 of an army. If there were 10,000 of those angels, Jesus could say in a second and all those angels would be gone. So why are you getting caught up with angels? Worship Jesus. So that's the point of Colossians. That's, that's the big idea. And the question is, do you think of Jesus like that? That much power? That much authority? Today is Palm Sunday. We're worshiping him as a king. How many of you have ever sat with that notion? If you're a Christian, do you know you have a king? A real, living, breathing king with flesh and blood. You can't see him that way at this moment, but one day we will. He is our king. He gets to tell us how to live in ways that he will bless he is our highest authority. And so may we honor him. So the point of all this is the preeminence of Christ. And so next letter, Philemon. I know this is crazy, isn't it? Who, who wants to go through all these Bible verses like this? It's nuts, but it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's amazing too. So hang with me. If you're still, if you're falling asleep, wake up. Just a couple more minutes. Philemon, the shortest book in, uh, of Paul's epistles. What's the point of Philemon? Uh, Philemon was a wealthy um, landowner in the city of Colossae who had a servant named Onesimus. And his servant got tired of being a servant and he probably stole some stuff from Philemon and he ran to Rome. And guess who he bumped into into Rome? 
somehow in the providence of God, he meets Paul and began serving him. I think he was probably driving for Grubhub, trying to make a living in Rome and delivered, you know, Paul's under house arrest and so he can't get out to eat much. And so he calls an order and, and Onesimus comes and brings him some food. And that's how they got introduced. Paul says, you know, I need a little help around the house. Can you help do some cleaning? Sure. So he hires this guy who's trying to make a living. Something like that happened. Probably not exactly like that, but something like that. And, and while he's spending time, Onesimus is spending time with Paul. Paul shares the gospel with him and he becomes a believer, completely transformed. And I'm going to use my imagination. So a little bit of liberty here. Though they're talking one day and Paul says, you know, where'd you come from? He said, well, I came from Colossae. Wow, Colossae all the way to Rome. It's a long trip. And why'd you come here? Uh, well, um, I sort of quit my job early. Um, well, what was your job? I was, I was a servant to a guy. And well, How'd you get here? I, I, I borrowed some of his household goods and funded my trip here. As Paul begins to hear how Onesimus got here and under, which, under the circumstances he left, Paul says, you've you got to go back and get reconciled. You need to reconcile to your, your master. You, you, you need to return the money. He's like, I, I can't do that. He won't, he'll kill me if I go back. They pray about it. And Paul says, you know what? Let me write a letter. I'll write a letter. I know your master, by the way. We used to work together in the church. I'll, I'll write a letter and ask him to be gracious to you and to accept you as if he were accepting me and to charge your debts to my account. And, and, and you go back and... They prayed about it, and that's exactly what happened. Onesimus takes this letter to his former, his master, Philemon, and goes back, and they're reconciled. What's the point of Philemon? Irreconcilable relationships in Christ Jesus can be reconciled. When you think it is impossible for any relationship to be mended, I tell you, I know a savior who can do miracles. And some of us are in relationships that are going to take miracles for God to, to work in order to restore. But I tell you, he can do it. Seek him with all of your heart and he can do it. All right, that's the prison epistles. Now quickly, the, the pastoral epistles. First and second Timothy and then Titus. Paul writes two letters to Timothy. Timothy is a young man that Paul bumped into on his second missionary journey. Uh, he, Timothy was from a city of Lystra. Paul passed through. He preached in Lystra. His mom, Timothy's mom and grandmother became believers as Paul went through the first time round. And then on his second trip back through the city, Timothy had grown and matured such that all of the local Christians said, man, this guy, God's got his hand on him. Something great God can do through him. And so Paul invites him to join him on his missionary trips and they go off together. Paul trains him and equips him, teaches him to be a minister and then sends him to the city of Ephesus to be the pastor of that local church. And he says in verse three of chapter one, go teach certain persons, uh, 
charged them not to teach any different doctrine. So again, false doctrine is beginning to creep into the church. Paul sends him back in order to correct their wandering. Uh, He says they have swerved from the truth. They've wandered off into vain discussion. And they are confidently making assertions about things they know nothing about. So go correct this situation, Timothy. And so Timothy does. And and yet one thing that Paul wants Timothy to know in order to be effective minister, here's what you need to know. This is 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 17. Paul says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Paul just listed all of his faults and all of the reasons he ought to be condemned. And then he says, Timothy, you need to know this. God uh, saved a, such a wretched person like me, a murderer, blasphemer, persecuting the church. He saved me as an example so that you could go and preach to people and say, if God can save Paul, he can save anyone. If, if God can save a murderer, he can save you. If God can save a blasphemer, he can save you. In other words, Paul is helping Timothy get into his head, Christ extends salvation to the most unworthy people, not the most worthy. You don't have to clean your act up in order to come to Christ. You come to Christ and then he helps clean you up. And, and, and by uh, continual confession and, and walking with the Lord, that's how he grows us. And so Paul wants Timothy to know this. And then second Timothy, I'll just quickly go to This comes at the very end of Paul's life. He is now uh, understanding that his execution is imminent. He he encourages Timothy to flee youthful lusts. It's like Paul's final words. If you want to read Paul's final words, read 2 Timothy. It'll take you about 15 minutes. You can read the whole letter. It's not long. But he says, walk in a way that is holy. He says, the time of my departure is near Um, And and I know what's coming. But even in this moment, he's hopeful. And he says to Timothy, you know, just in case I live a little longer than I expect, could you bring me some books and and bring the scrolls of the Bible? And I really need a coat because I'm cold. Um, so, So come and visit me. Come, come and visit me. But he knows the end of his life is near um, and, and that's how it, that book, that letter concludes. I just quickly go to Titus. Paul helps Titus understand the qualifications for elders, how the church ought to run and, and be governed. So if you, if you want to look at how does the church run, read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. He gives a pretty comprehensive view. But I want to, I want to let you conclude with Paul's words that you heard at the beginning of the service. Here, here's the last couple of sentences because I, I, as I was praying about this, I'm kind of struck. These are just letters. I, I don't know that Paul ever dreamed anything he was writing we would be talking about today. I think he, he thought it would be helpful, but for God to, to bless so many generations of believers, I'm not quite sure he fully grasped that. Maybe he did, but I, I don't know. But I'm just amazed. When's the last time any of you have written a letter? Not a text message, not, not an email, 
a letter. The church has been blessed for thousands of years by these letters that Paul wrote. And I, I woke up a couple of mornings ago to a letter by my sink from somebody I live with, uh, who, my wife. She wrote me a little letter, like hand and ink on a piece of paper. I, I was like, what is this? I don't see those anymore. And it blessed my socks off. Almost made me cry, the kind things that she wrote about me. And, and I just, we're, these are letters from Christians who are trying to live their lives in a faithful way to the Lord Jesus. And so that, that's, what, that's what the Bible is. It's, it's a love letter from God through humans to us to help us live in a way that he will bless and so I, when you read the Bible, just especially the New Testament, read it as a letter that's written to you, intended to bless you and equip you. And, and so that's the first thing I want to leave you with is just, these are letters written to edify your faith and keep you walking with Jesus. And, and then secondly, I want to invite you to say, you never know the power of the written word. You never know the the degree to which you writing some, I mean, thoughtful feelings. That's the difference between a letter and a text message. You actually think about it, right? And sometimes we shoot off stuff, you know, and the world blows up. And so a letter, we think, we write. And I want to encourage you, if somebody has blessed you spiritually, write them a letter. It doesn't have to be massively long. Just write an encouragement. If you know someone who's struggling, right? Somebody... But some of us have lost granddads and dads in this room. We've, we've lost family members. We could use some encouragement. You've, you, you know people who are, are struggling with issues. Write them an encouraging letter. Just a little short note. I want to encourage you to do that. Write. Husbands, wives, write love letters to each other. Keep doing that, right? Family members who you, with whom you need to reconcile, if they won't take your phone call, maybe they'll receive a letter. Maybe. I don't know, but I know Christians all across the planet have been blessed by these letters, these epistles, which Paul wrote as he was facing the end of his life. So I'm just going to read these final sentences, and I'm going to ask you to think about it, and I'm going to give you one minute of silence to do so. But ask the Lord, what are you saying to me today? Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Not only me, but also all, everyone who has loved his appearing. What is the Lord saying to you through these words?